1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, William Shakespeare exposed. My guest provides solid evidence that William Shakespeare was no playwright.
2: He knew ancient Greek. He knew Latin. He knew French, Italian. He was extremely well-educated, and these were certainly not taught at the local grammar school where the Stratford man grew up.
0: This podcast is brought to you by BrightBiz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free. And these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com to grab your copy. I know there are a lot of websites out there. They offer you a special deal, and then they stick you in some annoying recurring program. Don't worry. This isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. BrightBiz is giving away this guide free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end, so don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com. FreeBusinessToolbox.com.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, pursuing the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption, and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Monday. It is Monday, right? Do you ever get so busy, your days start to crash into one another and you wake up, you have no idea what day it is? That happens to me a lot these days. Pleasure and action make the days seem short, right? That's William Shakespeare. Or is it? Is it possible the man born in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1564 didn't write that or any of the immortal plays or poems? Well, in fact, there's a growing body of solid evidence to suggest that William Shakespeare may not have been William Shakespeare. So where does this doubt come from? And if it wasn't William Shakespeare who authored those works, then who did? Well, we are about to find out. Catherine Chilgen is an independent scholar who studied the Shakespeare authorship question for nearly 30 years. She's debated the topic with English professors at the Smithsonian Institution and at the Mechanics Institute Library in San Francisco. She's written several articles for the newsletter of the Shakespeare Oxford Society, was its editor, and is a former society trustee. Chilgen has given talks on the Shakespeare authorship question in numerous public libraries, clubs, universities, and bookstores throughout California. She's appeared on Authors and Critics, and... KQED's radio show Forum with Michael Krasny. Children is a frequent guest on internet radio shows. She is the author of Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. Catherine Chilgen, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: I'm well, thank you
0: well this is this is treading on pretty sacred ground now isn 't it that will Shakespeare is not who we think he is or was uh, How did you first of all how did you uh, enter this arena
2: Yes, well, uh, I first saw a debate on television between somebody who supported the Earl of Oxford as the true author of Shakespeare and uh, versus a, a Shakespeare professor from I believe Princeton who was defending the man born in Stratford-on-Avon, the person who we believe wrote the Shakespeare plays. And I saw an incredible disparity of evidence. I'm a history major from UCLA, and I saw uh, the Earl of Oxford's uh, spokesman um, making fact fact after fact, point after point, and the other side just casting aspersions on the man. So I thought, I'm going to look into that myself. And, well... That the rest
0: is history. Well, that's when the red flag should go up, right? When all the other side has or uh, are ad hominem attacks and, and circular arguments. Uh, exactly. So that's obviously what, what launched you on your way here. Now, point of clarification, was there in fact, regardless of whether there was someone else writing under the name of William hyphen spear uh, but was there an actual William Shakespeare who who was born in Stratford upon Avon?
2: Exactly, there were actually two different William Shakespeares. The man born in Stratford on Avon, whose name was actually pronounced, if we look at how it was spelled, more like Shakespeare. So there was that gentleman, and uh, then there was um, a man using the pen name William Shakespeare. Uh, the name usually contained a hyphen between shake and spear, which is a descriptive action, spear shaking. And um, that's what it was. It, it was a pen name. And he was somebody with a totally different background.
0: So let's wade into the the weeds here. Um, so there was a William... Shakespeare or how did you pronounce it Shakespeare?
2: Shakespeare, that's that, if you look at how the name was spelled in documents it usually is pronounced that way.
0: Right. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue like William no. Shakespeare does it. No. So the he was born, there was a William Shakespeare born in Stratford-upon-Avon. The the person that was using the pen name, then how would he have stumbled upon That name, why would he have settled upon that name of all names?
2: I think he developed that name uh, very early in his career, and it really is descriptive of jousting because the jousting instrument was called a long spear. So he was a spear shaker and he. Um, the Earl of Oxford won a couple uh, jousting tournaments even though that was sort of a medieval sport and we're talking about Renaissance times, it was revived under Queen Elizabeth I so she loved these jousting tournaments and um, that's probably what was meant by William Shakespeare
0: So w- w- when one argues that there, w- there is no lifetime evidence or con- or contemporaneous evidence that William shakes-spear, was born in Stratford-upon-Avon. What do we mean by that? Because there is evidence that the, the other William Shakespeare was born in Stratford-upon-Avon. So what do we mean? There's no evidence that the other one was born there.
2: there well, um, the, the William of Stratford, um, there is no lifetime evidence that he actually wrote anything or that he was educated. Um, there is some connections between him and the theater. He, um, on the, the first occasion that we know of in 1595, he was about 30 years old, and he was one of three people depu- deputed to receive a payment for an acting company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. And um, thereafter, he uh, was listed as a theater shareholder of the um, Globe, Globe Theater, in 1599, and also in 1603 he was named as a member of an acting company. So he was definitely involved in the theater, but there's no, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was also a writer. You know, there were other people, I found another William Shakespeare from Warwickshire, which is the county of the Stratford men, William Shakespeare. But uh, he was a soldier, and this was in 1605, there's a reference. So that wasn't that unique a name.
0: Oh, interesting! Um, I didn't realize that. Yes, okay.
2: there were, there were a few William, actually, a few William Shakespeares during this period.
0: So I guess to avoid confusion, we'll yes. we'll call the the uh, William Shakespeare the the faux William Shakespeare, if you will. Okay. Uh, the man who did not write the plays, right. according <laughs> to your uh, theory, we'll call him the Stratford man. Agreed. Right,
2: Stratford. Yes.
0: Okay. So the Stratford man, he was he was born in in uh, Stratford. We have we have evidence of that, but we don't have See where it gets confusing is <clears throat> if you're saying that the other one wasn't born there, that presupposes that there was another one. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Right. So well, uh, Yeah. There, like let me just give you an example. Um there were two men who were poets during this period, who were named John Davies. So it's a similar it's a similar uh situation where sometimes you get a little bit confused. But there were two separate William Shakespeare's, one using a pen name and one born with that name. And the one born with that name was not the man who wrote Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. He was primarily a theater investor.
0: An investor and perhaps illiterate, you make the argument.
2: Um, Well, because there's nothing in his handwriting Um, One can argue that, and his parents were both illiterate, and his children, he had two surviving daughters, they too were illiterate. So it it wasn't exactly the perfect family to to grow up in, um, if you were going to become the greatest writer the world probably ever has seen.
0: Um, Right, right. So, yes, if his daughters were illiterate, yet the father supposedly writes 40 plays and knew how many languages—
2: um, I would say at least five or six he was uh, he knew uh, ancient Greek you know knew Latin he knew French Italian um, of course English <laughs> and um, he was extremely well educated and these were mo- these modern languages and, and Greek were certainly not taught at the local grammar school where the Stratford man grew up Um, he may have gotten some Latin there, but that's, that's about it. But, um, the great author also knew astronomy and flowers and heraldry and rhetoric and, and so many topics he knew Italian geography in, in minute detail, um, so many things that you just couldn't pick up at the local grammar school. He had to have been somebody who went to university and we have those records, university records of, of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, he also knew law very intimately. There's been a few books about that, how, how well versed he was in the law. And they too, uh, they had law schools. They, they, they called them inns of court and, all of these records survive and there is no William Shakespeare on any of these uh, records
0: fascinating yes. uh, what, what you're describing sounds like what we used to call a classical education particularly you know rhetoric that was something that would I would imagine also would have been taught in the in, in the court
2: oh yes and that's another uh, great point is he had he spoke the language of the court how did he know how kings and queens? Uh, their their customs their their sports how would he know these things unless he had direct exposure and there's no record of a william shakespeare being part of the court that you know so i mean everywhere you want to look for him william shakespeare you can't find him hmm. no, and no beyond records. the fact that no one no contemporary said they knew him during his lifetime you know um uh, it's just the the zeros and the mysteries just keep mounting mounting mounting
0: the, the 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 Stratford man had a a son-in-law that was a doctor did he not
2: yes he did dr hall john hall and he he kept detailed notes of his patients and for example one of his patients was michael drayton who was a local who who was born and raised in the Warwickshire county like the stratford man and um, Dr. Hall made a mention that he was a very good poet. Um, yet, this same Dr. John Hall, in, in in his records, made no mention that his fa- father-in-law was a famous, celebrated poet. Nothing.
0: Right, right. What one, one would assume, you know, he, he'd he'd have uh, he'd be bragging to anyone yeah. that would listen uh, that his father-in-law was the great William Shakespeare
2: town itself never even acknowledged that they had somebody great living there. Um, they didn't even uh, uh, recognize him for 100 years. Um, and that's, that's where we get to another great mystery, is when the Stratford man died in 1616, nobody said a word. The town didn't say a word, and nobody in the literary world said a word. It was complete silence, which was totally irregular for these times. Um, you could you could list many different poets of the time. Within a year of their death, there would be some sort of verses written in in commemoration, uh, or somebody might note it in a letter. That's uh, you know, Edmund Spenser died, right? Um, right. Something like that, but nothing, nothing about Shakespeare.
0: Did the Stratford man himself? Do we have any writing samples? I, I think you said we only have some signatures, but we don't. Do we have any writing samples from him? Any journal no, entries?
2: No, no, nothing. Zero. It's empty. Like it, it, he did have a will and he signed his will. And all we have are six signatures. Three are on that will. And then the other three are on legal documents, which have nothing to do with, you know. <laughs>
0: right. Although someone who, yeah. would, who would argue that he was, in fact, the Stratford man was William Shakespeare, they were one and the same would argue, yes, we have plenty of, of uh, writing samples. We have 40 plays. How about the signatures? Do we have a signature of the, of the, the man that was using the pen name William Shakespeare so that we could compare
2: um, well, I mean, like I said, these are two different men. These right. are two separate men. Um, the Stratford man, um, who signed his will, and then the Earl of Oxford, who I believe was the man using the pen name. Yes, he, he left behind, uh, uh almost 80 letters, handwritten letters, and with the signatures.
0: And did he? Uh, he...
2: There is no, um, a Shakespeare play manuscript or poem manuscript or sonnet manuscript that has survived ah. where we can hear our handwritings. Yeah, there's no manuscripts, which is another great mystery. Where, where, where are the play manuscripts? We don't even have one page, and yet he wrote over forty, 40 plays. Um, so that's all the mystery. Yeah.
0: Are there? Are there? I mean, you've talked about his erudition, his intimate knowledge of France and Italy and Greece, and yet William Shakespeare, the Stratford man, apparently never left the country. Uh, is it? Is it possible that he was just very well read?
2: Well, they didn't have public libraries back then. Um, but like I said, he, he should have been um, in some school. Like, for example, example, Christopher Marlowe went to the Westminster School. Um, he did, you know, uh, you know so we have evidence of education of the, uh, you know, the more well-known writers of the period. But um, it's blank. Um, it's possible that he had a patron, but why don't we have any known patron, um, any, any correspondence? There's nothing. And you have to keep in mind, all right, it was 400 years ago, but there's thousands of letters, personal letters that have survived. Um, many, many journals, they call them commonplace books, where people would write little notes and so they would write down their favorite sayings. Um, they would, you know, all sorts of journals have survived. Nothing, nothing, um, or the great Shakespeare.
0: Fascinating. What about the statue of uh, the Bard in uh, Stratford? There's um, a little bit of a conspiracy there, perhaps.
2: Um, in the, the effigy on the wall monument, yes, that's a great point. Um, there is, inside the, the Stratford-upon-Avon church is a wall monument, And uh, to Shakespeare, um, S-H-A-K-S-P-E-A-R-E. It's not exactly spelled as we know it. And there's a man there, and he's holding a pen and paper. It's an effigy of a man, and that's supposed to represent the great author. But there's a problem there. Uh, In 1634, a gentleman went in there, and he was writing a book of... Of funerary monuments in the various churches and he made a drawing of it and the drawing in 1634 which was within 20 years of when it was erected um, it is something that's completely different to what's there today it's a man with um, a long beard uh, holding a sack of some sort uh, he's hmm. not holding a pen and paper <laughs> and um Someone wrote a wonderful article um about it claiming that that actually that man was the Stratford man's father who was a, a dealer in wool uh-huh. and that sack would be a wool sack and that the, that obviously the monument changed and there is uh, other evidence uh beyond the pictorial um that the monument was changed there was we have records that work was done in sixteen twenty two in that area of the church so it very well may have you know been altered or changed
0: did you know that william shakespeare wrote a lot about dogs he mentions them time and time again in his plays thou callst me a dog before thou hadst a cause but since i am a dog beware my fangs <laughs> i love that one How would you like to have the obedient and loving dog of your dreams? How would you like to develop your dog's hidden intelligence to eliminate bad behavior and create an obedient, well-behaved pet? Well, a woman named Adrienne Ferracelli is a professional certified dog trainer, and she's helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, and loving pets. By bringing out this hidden intelligence, you can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, and no matter what kind of dog you have. The science behind this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. That's what allows our brains to learn new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has the same plasticity. And with the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. And when this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So, if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. realbusinessbargains.com.
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Catherine Chilgen, the author of Suppressed Shakespeare, is here. Do we have a handle on when that decision was made to... um, to, to make William or the Stratford man turn him into the bard, Shakespeare? When, when was that made, that
2: decision? That's a very um, interesting point, and I can't tell you for sure, but it appears that after the great author had died and after the Stratford man had died was when they decided they were going to merge these two different identities into one. And um it it began in 1623. Keep in mind that nobody connected the great author Shakespeare with the Stratford man until after 1623. And it was that year that a large book of Shakespeare plays were published. It's called that we call it today the first folio. Folio is large, a large page size. And there were 36 Shakespeare plays in there. And in the opening Pages. The prefatory pages. Um, there's various poems by p- various authors in tribute to Shakespeare, and one of the authors of, of these poems is, was Ben Johnson, a prominent playwright. Right. And he reg- he referred to Shakespeare as Sweet Swan of Avon. And then on another page, a couple pages later, by a different writer, refers to. Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. Now, keep in mind, there are many place names with the word Avon in it and many place names with the name Stratford in it. Um, The entire preface gives no biographical details, just Stratford and Avon. And so people would naturally put those two together and say, okay, he came from Stratford on Avon. And if you go to Stratford-on-Avon, you're going to see a wall monument to a Shakespeare. So I believe that that it was fixed that way to, without saying so directly, but to infer it, to imply it.
0: So do you think that for example, Ben Jonson was in on this ruse to, to identify the man, the Stratford man as the William Shakespeare?
2: I believe he was. Yes, I think he knew what was going on. Um, Keep in mind, you know, you have to say, well, why would he do it? Well, there were very powerful people, I believe, who were behind this. And you can go no further than looking in the opening pages of that first folio book. The book was dedicated to the Earl of Pembroke and his brother, the Earl of Montgomery. And they were the ones pretty much who funded, from what I can gather, this was a very expensive production. Um, and that's who the book was dedicated to. And um, the first sign that there's some problems with these opening pages is that this dedication letter to these two Earls, Brother Earls, um, is signed by two actors, Hemmings and Condal. But for over 200 years, Shakespeare's scholars believe that actually Ben Jonson wrote this letter. Hmm. So that's your, that's your first sign of a fraud. Um, there's another sign of the fraud in that same letter. Um, these supposedly these actors Hemings and Condell say, say that Shakespeare was their servant. There's no evidence of that. That's totally made up. He was in no way connected to the Earl of Pembroke or the Earl of Montgomery. So you're starting to see these falsities. Another falsity is right on the title page that says, published according to the true original copies, um, these 36 plays. Well, that, again, is a falsity. How Um, so? How so? Well, uh, several of the plays were actually reprints of very... Corrupt versions of the plays that were printed previously, so there's no way they could have come from the original copies. And so, there's there's all sorts of mistakes in the in the folio, printing mistakes. And-
0: okay, so how do these mistakes or these deliberate uh, deliberate uh, I'm not sure what how to describe them, um, but how do they point to a second William Shakespeare. How do they? How are they? How do they serve as evidence or proof that that uh, it wasn't the Stratford well, man who wrote these plays? The, the
2: the point that I'm making about this book is it was this book that was the source of what I believe was the fraud. Ah, okay. And um, as I mentioned, Ben Johnson wrote letters that were that were actually had another signature, which is that's a first sign of fakeness. They were not the original copies. Um, another sign of weirdness is um, the image of Shakespeare, the famous image that we all know the black and white engraving. Yes. Um, it's a very ugly image a man with a very bulbous head. Yes. Uh, it's not an attractive image, and it's also not the image of a poet. An image, a typical image of a poet during this period, was a man. Um, wearing bay leaves around his head, or holding bay leaves, a sign of victory. Uh, classical. Um, he's just shown as just kind of an average gentleman, basically. Um, he's not a, a, a dressed as an actor either, so uh, th- that's pointing toward the Stratford man too. He was a gentleman. He signed his name with gentleman. Oh,
0: so whoever. I- con- so the 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 re- the. the um- William Shakespeare, the, it gets so confusing, not the Stratford man, but the man posing as uh, Shakespeare, he he deliberately chose, it wasn't just luck of the draw that he happened to choose a name that someone else owned. He saw this person and said, I'm going to pretend to be him.
2: No, I don't think it was that way. Ah. Some, some people may, Some there's some theories in that direction, but no, I believe, uh, the Earl of Oxford started using the name William Shakespeare, you know the description of a jouster really yes um in the fifteen seventies when the Stratford man was you know just a kid, so i they did not i in my opinion no it had nothing to do with the Stratford man yet yeah, they, it, yeah, it's they his chose own, uh, his own made up pseudonym he was a nobleman, nobility back then um if they had an interest in literature. It was not something you'd want to advertise because it was considered frivolous it's not something you don't and it it was also declassé to be involved in the theater and 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 you certainly don't publish during your lifetime with your name your real name on it so there's various reasons why a nobleman or a high up gentlemen or courtier would, would want to use a fake name. There were many fake names during this period. It was very common.
0: Yet yet they settled on William Shakespeare's likeness, though, did they not?
2: Yes, for, for the book, but we're, now we're talking decades later. Ah,
0: okay. I this understand. is
2: after the great author had died. Understood. And after, the, after the Strapper man had died. And we don't even know if that's a, a contemporaneous image of him or not. We don't know where the image came from
0: so let's talk about the seventeenth Earl of Oxford, and why do we settle on him as the likely uh writer of these plays?
2: Well, because he had every requirement uh, for for the person to, to for the author if you if you made a list of all those topics that Shakespeare was expert in um, it's accountable with documentary evidence with the Earl of Oxford he went to um Cambridge when he was eight years old. And then he went to Oxford and he got his MA um, when he was uh, 16 years old. Then he went straight on to law school. Um, we have all this documented. Um, even he had tutors when he was a child and, then the, and the tutors wrote that he, basically he learned everything. They, they, he knew everything. They couldn't teach him anymore. He was a child prodigy. And his father, the 16th Earl of Oxford, had a company of players. So very likely he was raised in that theatrical environment. Um, After he he left law school and he got married, then he, when he was 25, he took a grand tour of Europe, you know, like they did. And they still do today, you know, to finish, for finishing. And he spent a year and a half abroad. And the most amount of time he spent was in Italy. And, you know, there's many Shakespeare plays that take place in Italy. He was greatly inspired by Italy. So all this is documented. And also Hamlet, for example. Hamlet is really the story of the life of the Earl of Oxford, very much so. Um, I mean, like he had an example where he killed somebody. The Earl of Oxford did, too. he, he patronized an acting company Hamlet did, well so did the Earl of Oxford he patronized two acting companies Fascinating. Uh, he was a traveler like Hamlet, he was a university student like Hamlet, he was a nobleman like, a courtier like Hamlet um, and he loved the 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 king's minister um, Hamlet and Oph- uh, Ophelia the uh, the, the most powerful man in England was William Cecil during this period. He was the Lord Treasurer of England uh, beyond next to the Queen Elizabeth. he was the next in charge uh-huh. and the Earl of oxford married married his daughter and Cecil so I mean his connection to how power mongers you know work, the inner trappings of government he he had direct exposure he he was raised actually um In the William Cecil's house. So I mean, everywhere you want to find accountability for knowledge or insights, the Earl of Oxford has it.
0: Only one thing that uh, confuses me.
2: Yes. My
0: understanding is the Earl died in 1604, and there are about a dozen fabulous plays including, I believe, uh, The the Tempest and um, King Lear. They were all written after that, weren't they?
2: Well, that's what orthodox Shakespeare scholars will tell you. But actually, there's no evidence that these plays were written after 1604. Um, That's the problem with not having a biography. The Stratford Man's biography is... You know, it's a big, almost a big zero. They know, they know his literary biography. We have right. biographical details of christenings and uh, taxes owed and things like that, financial deals, but not his literary biography. And so, therefore, the datings of the plays are totally up in the air. Um, you know, they, they date the plays based on the Stratford man's vital statistics, but there's no evidence that he was a writer, so it, it it doesn't follow that it has to be, you know, 1605, 1607, 1608. Right. There's no evidence. It really is just been speculation.
0: Why and is actually- it so hard for the Orthodox literary community, if I can use that term, to let go of this idea that there was – I mean, that the Earl was not responsible for writing these. Why can't they just say, okay, he used a pen name. All the evidence points to this individual. Let's go with that.
2: That's a great question. I'm still trying to, grappling of of why. Um, Maybe they've just been indoctrinated by their, you know, by starting as a student and then they become a grad student and then they become, they get their doctorate and, and everything is based on that story, and or or maybe they're just ignorant of the evidence that that their man has no known connection to writing or education, and they they just don't seem to think that's odd. Um, and 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 when we call them upon that, they call us names as you mentioned ad hominem attacks, um, which is not right. Actually, um, there's a great website called DoubtAboutWill.org, and there's hundreds of people with high degrees who say that there is reason to doubt the authorship of the Stratford man is a great author, um, in, including Supreme Court justices. So this is a legitimate issue. It's a historical issue. It's not you know, an English literature issue. It's a history issue. And um, maybe these uh, professors are not really historians. Or you no, know, I, I still don't know exactly the reason.
0: So, how was Shakespeare suppressed? Received when it came out?
2: Um, well, it is basically um, ignored by um, by the orthodox Shakespeare scholars. But within my own group, uh, I call myself an Oxfordian or an anti Stratfordian. It, 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 it has done very well, and um, because there's quite a bit of information in it, and all many many footnotes and sources. And um, and a lot of new information.
0: And you received an award for your for your scholarship. So
2: yes, I did. This is yeah. not
0: tabloid stuff. This is seven you know? years of heavy research.
2: Yes, yes, it is, um, and it's been a, a labor of love, and it's it's still the most to me the most exciting topic. Um, having knowing who the real author was and reading the plays, it, it enriches your experience so much. And, um, you know, I feel bad for the true author because if you, if you read his sonnets, which were his, um, you know, personal musings um, written in the first person, um, you know, he, he, he would say, my name be buried where my body is and live no more to shame, uh-huh. nor me, nor you. I mean, he was aware that something that he was not going to get credit the works he knew in his own lifetime.
0: But at what point did that, what did that change? Change was it? Was it? Uh, was it Lord was Byron? It Lord Byron right where it was all
2: right for
1: royalty or not?
0: You know, for the nobility to to write. When did that change?
2: Uh, I think it, I think maybe within the last hundred years. But I mean, even Jane Austen, when she published her novels, um, you know. it I think it was like written by a lady or something. It, it it the name was not given afterwards it was. But I mean even in the um, you know early 18th century, uh sorry 19th century, it was had a bit bit of a stigma and she was not even on, of the nobility. She you know. So yes, this is What about is, the uh,
0: descendants of the earl? What are they now not free to weigh in on this controversy and set the record straight?
2: Well, he, um he the the earldom of Oxford uh, died out with the 20th earl and then uh, a child of the 20th earl the, uh, I believe a, a daughter married into the um, St. Albans family the Duke of St. Albans and a descendant of the Duke of St. Albans um, he was he's a very good speaker on this topic so he's not a direct descendant but he um, He's a, he he is a relative of the Earldom of Oxford, and he's a very very good speaker. Um, and
0: are there any clues left uh, that that he may have access to that uh, that would shed further light on this?
2: No, unfortunately not. No, um, you know that's another thing. There are all sorts of records still in England, but there's very few people like me who are doing research or who even have access to some of these private libraries that may have more information um, about the Earl of Oxford, uh, maybe even a play manuscript. Um, So everybody is looking, researching in the wrong direction. If we start, you know, this is another reason why we need the real author. If we're looking in the right direction with hundreds of people doing research, you know, we might get more information.
0: Do you think the, yeah, you know, the, the great, current the great royal family might have a clue?
2: Um, it's There's no way of knowing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah.
0: So where do you go from here? I suspect you're not going to let this go.
2: No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm working <laughs> on another book, uh, probably an e-book, and hopefully I'll get that out sometime this year. Um, yeah, that's... I just continue doing my research. Like, for example, in the appendix of my book, I have a list of 93 too early allusions to the Shakespeare plays. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Unusual phrases or word clusters in the Shakespeare plays that appear in other people's works, um, to me, is really an allusion to a Shakespeare play. Um, but the Shakespeare orthodoxy will say, oh no, Shakespeare borrowed from this person and took that those images and weaved it into something unique of his own. That's not the case. Um, at the time I had 93 of these two early illusions. I now have over 700. Oh my. From From dozens and dozens of different writers. So the, the works were really pretty well known um, before... Again,
0: well, just just flesh that out a little bit. How do these allusions, you call them too soon allusions, explain how, again, that points to this hoax? Well, uh,
2: what, what the Shakespeare professor will tell you is that, you know, Shakespeare really wasn't that educated. And, and also he was a bit of a plagiarist. He was borrowing from... Other writers, that's not the case. It was the reverse. Many, many other authors were borrowing from him. He was the leader. He was the the head <laughs> that they all admired. And that that's my point about the two early illusions. Yes. and In and other words, they were
0: many, borrowing from Shakespeare before he was well-known, supposedly.
2: Yes, yes. And, and – when the Stratford man sometimes was two years old or three years old. So, you know, that's, oh,
0: I how, see. Aha.
2: that's how far back these illusions go. Yes.
0: Fascinating.
2: So, yeah, so do how do
0: people things. get a, um, a hold of Shakespeare Suppressed, the uncensored truth about Shakespeare and his works?
2: It is on Amazon. And um, also I have a website, shakespearesuppressed.com and you can buy through the website as well. Um, But I really encourage people to try and order it. It's in the second edition, 2016. uh, It's with Baker & Taylor, a a worldwide distributor. You can request it from your local library.
0: Catherine, thank you so much. I've enjoyed uh, this conversation and meeting you, and I've learned a lot.
2: Thank you so much, Richard.
0: Ah, parting is such sweet sorrow that I'll say goodnight until tonight becomes tomorrow. Uh, but before I dim the lights in my little studio, I'm going to fill you in on what's in store on episode 66 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But first, Life Extensions Mega Green Tea Extract. I've been extolling its virtues for some time now. But seriously, it provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant, which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Why don't you pour on these multiple health benefits for yourself? Green tea promotes cell membrane integrity. It boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL, and triglyceride levels, and so forth. Life Extension's mega green tea extract is also decaffeinated. And yet, it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven Cups of green tea. Heck, the Chinese have been using green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 B.C., and more recently, volumes of Published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Why don't you give your body what it needs? Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com. All right, coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited... Author-researcher Mary Joyce checks in from the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina and she'll tell us why she knows the Cherokee little people were real. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com Blow your mind.